missionary journey. We don't know that he ever wrote a book. In fact, the only thing we know about him is that he stayed home. And in doing so, he was equally as vital in the service of God as any missionary, any preacher, any evangelist. And he served in a capacity that each one of us, no matter what our gift or what our calling, is able to perform. His name is Gaius, and his ministry was hospitality. Now, hospitality literally means to love strangers. And it's a quality that God puts a premium on throughout Scripture. Way back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.33, we read this, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You're to treat a stranger like a friend. In fact, you are to love him as yourself, remembering that you once were a stranger. When you come to the New Testament, hospitality is one of the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Hospitality is one of the qualifications for widows whose needs were met through the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And hospitality is an exhortation to every one of us. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, it says we are to be practicing hospitality. That word literally means pursuing hospitality. In fact, when Jesus comes back, did you realize that hospitality is going to be the basis for judgment? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus comes back in all his glory and he sits on the throne and the nations are brought before him. There are the sheep and the goat nations and he divides one from the other and this is how he divides them. He says, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And they'll say, when did we do that? And he'll say, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. God places a premium on hospitality. And from Acts chapter 8 on, when persecution hit the early church, and Christian missionaries were scattered throughout the world, depending on hospitality, depending on other Christians, to house and feed them, it's been an essential part of the church. In fact, it was such an essential part of the early church that people often took advantage of it. It was often abused. At the turn of the first century, there was a book written called the Didache. It's the teaching of the Twelve. And it indicates to us that people were getting a little leery by the turn of the century because there's a section in that book called Rules for Traveling Preachers. Let me give you some highlights. A preacher may not stay beyond one day, or in case of necessity, two. If he stays three days, he's a false prophet. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin picked up on that in his Poor Richard's Almanac. Remember, he said, fish and visitors stink after three days. On departing, he may ask enough food to last him on his journey, but if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. 
And then get this one. No prophet who orders a table in the spirit shall eat of it, else he is a false prophet. That means if he comes into your house and says, the Holy Spirit is telling me we should have tenderloin, he's a false prophet. If he says the Holy Spirit's telling me to have tenderloin, you know the Spirit's telling you he should have macaroni. Now, these are not biblical edicts. These are just suggestions, but they indicate to us that a false prophet will generally stay longer than he's welcome and ask for more than he's given. And I think the concern just highlights for us what an essential part this played in the early church. Hospitality was evident. It was so evident that it was often abused. In fact, the main part of church life in the first century took place in homes. Churches met in houses. Now today, we have tended to close our homes. We have tended to make our homes places of retreat and isolation. The opposite ought to be true. Our homes ought to be open. They ought to be places where we show hospitality. Now that is the theme of 3 John. 1 John is written to the whole church. 2 John is written to a family. 3 John is written to an individual by the name of Gaius who is an example of hospitality. Notice verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, the elder is John, and John never refers to himself by name in his gospel or his three letters. This title, Elder, doesn't indicate just that he's old, although he is at this time, probably in his 90s. It indicates that he had the position in the church at Ephesus of elder. And he writes to Gaius. Now, you'll find several men in the New Testament by the name of Gaius. There's a Gaius in Corinth, a Gaius in Macedonia, a Gaius in Derbe. Some people have tried to tie all these together into one person. That's not really necessary. In fact, Alfred Plummer said Gaius was perhaps the most common of all names in the Roman Empire. It was equivalent to our John or Joe or Bill today. And so we're going to approach this Gaius as if this is a unique Gaius in this letter. We know nothing else about him anywhere else because what we learn about him here really stands on its own. And the first thing we learn about him here is that he is the beloved. People loved Gaius, and John particularly loved Gaius. In fact, in verse 1, he calls him the beloved. In verse 2, beloved. Verse 5, beloved. Verse 11, beloved. And just to make it clear, he says at the end of verse 1, whom I love in truth. That's a phrase we saw last week in 2 John. I love you in truth. You hear people today talking about true love. Well, you're not going to have true love unless you love in truth. So much of what passes for love today is sentimental, it's emotional, and therefore it's temporary. Genuine, true love is grounded in truth. It doesn't come and go. It's sure, it's solid, it's immovable. Genuine love is not generated by my emotions It's not dictated by my circumstances. It's not affected by my preferences. It is based on truth. There are three kinds of love. 
One love says, I love you if. I love you if you love me. I love you if you do things my way. I love you if I feel like it. The second kind of love says, I love you because. I love you because you're attractive. I love you because you're popular, because you're rich, because you're lovable. But the third kind of love says, I love you, period. I love you in spite of your looks, in spite of your personality, in spite of your background. You see, that's true love. That's love based on truth. You can count on it. It will always be there. And so much of what passes as love today is immoral. It's impure. In fact, in our society, love has become a synonym for lust. Well, genuine love is grounded in truth. It's not grounded in deception. It's not grounded in ulterior motives. It is honest clean, righteous, pure. That is true love. If you want to tell someone that you love them, don't say roses are red, violets are blue. Say, I love you in truth. Now, what kind of truth is John talking about? Well, go back a page to 2 John and look again at verse 1. He writes to the chosen lady and her children. He says, Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. You see, it's the truth. It's the truth that is abiding and eternal. It's the truth that saves us, sets us free, sanctifies us, renews our minds, transforms us into the likeness of Christ so that his nature appears in me. And what is the primary characteristic of God's nature? God is love. And that's why John can say in 2 John verse 1, right at the end, he says, not only I, but all who know the truth love you. Why can he say that? Because love flows out of truth. And that's why only believers are called beloved, agapetas, because only we can love in truth. And that's the love, that's the kind of love that John has for Gaius. And I think in Gaius's case, there's a little more to it than this. It's even, even more personal than this, because if you look at verse 3 of 3 John, he says... Brethren have come and told me at the end of the verse how you are walking in truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Apparently Gaius was one of John's spiritual children. And so he has an, a special affection for him. And then he expresses his love in the form of a prayer in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects... You may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, what's the prayer? I pray that you'll be doing as well physically as you are spiritually. I pray that your physical well-being will match your spiritual well-being. Now, don't you wish John could pray that for all of us? For some of us, that would be a curse. You know, if our physical well-being suddenly matched our spiritual well-being, 
some of us would fall over unconscious in the pew. John would have to pray for us just the opposite. He would have to say, I pray that you would be doing as well spiritually as you are physically and materially. Now, the first part of this verse is really a colloquialism. It's like our present-day wish. I hope this letter finds you doing well. But John adds to that, just as your soul prospers. He could say that about Gaius because Gaius had an inner life that was vibrant and vital. His soul was strong. He was robust in Christ. His spiritual life was prospering. He had it all together. He was mature. He was growing. And so John could say to him, I pray that in the physical area, you would have the same kind of prosperity. Now I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, physical health and physical prosperity are not wrong to pray for. They are right to pray for. But God's priority is spiritual. Don't ask for physical health and physical prosperity if you don't have spiritual prosperity. Because if you get the answer to that prayer, you could end up with a very empty life. Don't say, God, if you bless this lottery ticket, I'll start living for you. You see, the key is you start living for him. When you get your spiritual life in order, when someone has their spiritual life in order, then I can pray for them beyond that, that God would bless their health and that God would bless them materially. Second, it's not automatic. You see, some people say that if you get your spiritual life in order, you will automatically have good health and prosperity. It doesn't work that way. If that were true, then John wouldn't have to pray this prayer. He says, Gaius, you're doing great spiritually. I pray beyond that that God would bless your health and God would bless you materially. If you have a problem with that idea, just read the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It ends up talking about people who, by faith, were destitute and afflicted, living in caves and holes in the ground. By faith. So you can be doing great spiritually and be destitute physically. And that's evident in John's prayer for Gaius. He says, I pray that your health and your prosperity will catch up with your soul. You say, well, how did John know that Gaius was doing so well spiritually? Well, look at verse 3. He says, For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness. Now, I don't have a real good translation there because my translation says they came. That Greek word is actually in the present tense. The idea is they keep coming. Brothers keep coming and they always have the same message. They keep bearing witness. And what is the message that they bear witness to about Gaius? Well, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, They bear witness to your truth. And verse 6 says, And they bear witness to your love. Two things that Gaius had going. He had truth and he had love. The first is truth. Now, how did John know that he had truth. 
How, how did these individuals see and bear witness to the truth that was in Gaius? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 3, he says, they bear witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. How do I see the truth in someone's life? They're walking in it. You see, Gaius was adorning the doctrine of God. He believed what God said, and it was evident by the way he lived his life. In fact, I want you to notice something. In verse 3, he says, they bore witness to your truth. The truth becomes your truth when it moves from your brain to your feet. You see, when you start walking in the truth, then it beca- it's, first it's God's truth, it becomes your truth when you start living it out. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word. Doers of the word. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. John 13.17 says, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And probably the most convicting verse in all the scriptures is Luke 6, 46, where Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The title Lord implies obedience. Jesus was walking through a crowd in Luke chapter 11, and a woman cried out and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus responded by saying, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Gaius was blessed because Gaius walked in truth. The greatest heartache is to see someone who knows the truth and doesn't walk in the truth. There's no greater sorrow than that. Because you know what the greatest joy is? Look at verse 4. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. The greatest joy for a person who loves you in truth is to see you walking in the truth. You parents know that. What matters to you most about your kids? See, my son's prospering materially does not bring me great joy. My daughter experiencing wonderful health does not bring me great joy. What will bring me great joy is seeing my sons and my daughter walk in the truth. And some of you parents know the flip side of that. You know the pain of having a child who knows the truth but is not walking in the truth. And that same concern is felt by spiritual parents. When you have the blessing of being involved in seeing someone come to Christ, your greatest joy is to see them go on in their walk with Christ, to see them walk in the truth. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. 
Your leaders are the ones who lead you into truth, who teach you the truth. How do you bring them great joy? By walking in the truth. How do you bring them grief? By knowing the truth, but not walking in it. I had a fellow stop by my office recently. I hadn't seen him in 15 years. I hadn't seen him since he was a college student and I was working as a college ministry here on the campus. And he reminded me of how he had come to the Lord there and I had been the one that kind of held the baby bottle of God's truth and fed him as a newborn baby. And he just wanted to come back and say, thank you for what you did in my life. Fifteen years later, he's now the national director of a ministry to international college students. I haven't seen him for 15 years. He shows up and says, I'm walking in the truth, and not only that, I'm reaching out to, to college students throughout the nation. Now, I'll tell you what. That brought me great joy to see that he was walking with the Lord. There is no greater joy than that for a spiritual parent. And so John, the spiritual father, if you like, of Gaius, knows that he's doing well spiritually, number one, because he's walking in the truth. But number two, because of his love. Look at verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers and they bear witness to your love before the church. Now, communication in that day was limited and one of the primary ways they got information about people in other churches was by traveling preachers who would come and they would stand up in front of the church and they would tell about what was going on in the various churches. And he says, these men keep bringing the same message about Gaius. And that message is about his love. Now, how did they witness his love? How did they see his love? Well, look again at verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially for strangers. They saw his love by the things that he did. And not only the things that he did for the other brothers, but the things that he did for strangers. You see, that's hospitality. Then I want you to notice three words in verse 5. I want you to notice that word, accomplish. It's the Greek word that means to labor. Hospitality is work. Now you ladies are nodding and you're, you guys are going. See, it's a lot of work to prepare and clean and cook and host. But listen, you will never spend your time any better than when you do that kind of labor to minister to God's servant. That is a labor of love. Second word I want you to see is the word faithful. Hospitality is a faithful thing. What you are doing springs out of your faith. It's out of faith in what God has done for you and for God, what God has called you to do. And so as you serve, as you clean, as you do dishes, as you do those menial tasks, they are actually acts of faith toward the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly, don't miss that word, strangers. 
See, we usually call hospitality having our friends over, and then we say to them, when are you going to have us back over to your house? Hospitality, from the biblical standpoint, is to show love, to open your house to someone you've never met before and you may never meet again. That's the expression of love. And Gaius had that kind of love expressed by his hospitality. And so John adds an encouragement to him in verse, at the end of verse 6 and to us as well. Notice what he says. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You will do well. In other words, keep it up. Don't change. You've been showing hospitality. Keep showing hospitality. And next week we'll see the reason for that because if you slide down to verse 10, you'll see there was a fellow in the church by the name of Diotrephes who was forbidding those who receive the brethren. So he says to Gaius, you keep it up and let this be your standard. Treat them in a manner worthy of God. Now that can mean one of two things. That could mean treat them like God would treat them. How would God treat them? Well, God would give them the best. He would give them his bed. He would give sacrificially. So treat them like God would treat them, or it could mean treat them the way you would treat God. How would you treat Jesus if he came to visit at your house? Well, treat God's servants the same way. And then there's three reasons he gives in verses 7 and 8. First is their motive. Notice verse 7. For they went out for the sake of the name. Their motive is pure. They didn't go out to make a name for themselves. They didn't go out for gain. They didn't go out for glory. Their sole motive is to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Reminds me of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. It says, after they were beaten... They were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's their motive. Secondly, their method, verse 7, right at the end it says, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They were so careful not to be accused of charging for the gospel that they never took anything from the Gentiles, from pagans, from lost people. That's one of the reasons you don't find a, uh, a giving bag in front of your face all the time in this church. Because we don't want you to come in here, if you're not a believer, thinking we're charging you for hearing the gospel. It's free. And they were care- very careful about that. They didn't want to receive anything from the Gentiles. That's the method of God's servants. Their method was pure. And he says, verse 8, Therefore... We ought to support such men. Since they're not receiving anything from the Gentiles, guess who has to support them? We do. You see, if, if they don't get anything from you, they're not going to get anything because they're not going to go out and get it from the world. And that's a principle. God's people should support God's work. And then thirdly, their mission, verse 8, continues that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Here's another principle. Whatever we support, we participate in. Whatever we support, we become fellow workers with. Remember last week? 2 John verse 11 says, if we support an evil worker, 
we share in his evil deeds. This letter tells us that if you support a Christian worker, you share in his good deeds. You say, well, I don't know if I can go to the mission field. You don't have to, to participate in the work. When you support God's worker, you are a fellow worker with him. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. When you share with one of God's workers, you not only share in the work, you also share in the reward. The one who shows hospitality to and supports those ones who have gone out for the sake of the name are just as much a part of the mission as the missionary. So we met Gaius this morning. We don't know that he ever preached. We don't know that he ever went on a missionary journey. We don't know that he ever wrote a book. But we do know that he did something just as important. He did something just as vital in the service of God as any preacher, any missionary, any evangelist. He was a fellow who, without leaving home, helped spread the gospel throughout the world. In fact, he did it by staying home and opening his home in the ministry of hospitality. And I want to suggest that he serves as an example to you and me this morning because that's a ministry that each one of us is not only able to do, but is called to do. We're going to close this service this morning. Before I do, I'm going to ask Susan Park and Kevin Alexander to come back forward. Uh, these are the two that were baptized this morning. At the close of our service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to meet them if you haven't, to greet and encourage them as well. This is Susan, and here comes Kevin. And I'm going to ask Dad and Susan to meet Kevin halfway up the aisle. And they will be out in the lobby for you to greet them after the service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture that reminds us that not only have you blessed us with a house and a home, but you have asked us to use it for your kingdom. And Father, I pray that we might be challenged today to use those things that you've blessed us with so, so that we might have open homes and open hearts to your people so that we might participate in the work that you're doing to reach this world. We thank you for the privilege that is and thank you that for the realization that we don't necessarily have to go around the world to hear one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we want to be part of a team and we pray that you would use us to be so for Jesus' sake. Amen.